360 degrees. High high, 360 degrees. High high, 360, 360, 360 degrees. High high, high high, high high. Round and round, round we go. Let's get to the circle, 360. Round and round, round we go. Good evening and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. This show is written, produced, and broadcasting live from Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as the Bay Area. On tonight's show, we'll speak about the ongoing nationwide prison strike that began on August 21st. The strike is spread to facilities in 15 states, though prison officials continue to deny anything is out of the ordinary. Tonight, we'll speak with Cole Dorsey from the Oakland chapter of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee and with Maru Mora Vialpando of Northwest Detention Center Resistance, both of whom are working with prisoners engaged in the strike. We'll also speak with prison radio founder Noel Hanrahan on censorship and the role of media in covering prisons. We'll hear voices from the inside, imprisoned activists and revolutionaries speaking on conditions, labor, and our ever-expanding prison industrial system. All that tonight on Full Circle. I'm your host, Mari Nakagawa. Keep it locked. Good evening, everyone, and again, welcome to Full Circle on 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley and kpfa.org. Prisoners nationwide are striking. Their demands to be treated as human beings. Tonight, we're joined live in studio with Cole Dorsey from the Oakland chapter of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. Cole, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate being here. So in April of this year, a group of imprisoned activists called Jailhouse Lawyers Speak announced the nationwide prison strike. The group released a list of demands, including improved living conditions, greater access to resources, and an end to what many are calling prison slavery. Incarcerated people in at least 15 states are participating in work stoppages, hunger strikes, sit-ins, and commissary boycotts. So where exactly are these prisoners taking these actions, and what kind of retaliation have they met? Well, we've got, like you said, uh, we've got actions in... um facilities in over 15 states and in one Canadian province in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and they've taken a number of different um, uh, paths to uh, to get their demands out in the public attention and media attention, and so they've ranged from hunger strikes to refusing to order off the commissary list to refusing to use the um, uh, telephone services that are charged at exorbitant rates um, to sit-ins, and um, so it's it's really ran the gamut of, um, of um, you know, nonviolent um, demonstrations that they've chosen at different facilities. Can you talk about the impact on a prison and the internal economy of Prisoners refusing to go to work to purchase things from commissary, what impact does it have? It's very powerful, um, and uh, that was kind of shown um, really importantly in 2016 when um, uh, facilities were shut down. Um, 30,000 prisoners didn't go to work uh, on uh, April 
September 9th in 2016. And really what what it shows is that uh, prisoners nowadays are more so than not are used to keep the facilities functioning. Um, so like in my term incarceration, jobs I had ranged from uh, cutting the grass to mopping the floors. But uh, it's everything from food service to laundry, um, anything you can think of, maintenance, um, the, the facilities run and, and the larger facilities create, make food and do laundry for smaller facilities. So um, the, the, the state in and of itself wouldn't run without prison labor, without prisoners going to their jobs every day and filling orders for commissary or um, cleaning the hallways or delivering the food and making the food. So um, it's really impactful. And that's why this, this, this strike this year has really been a progression from 2016 because the recognition of the effect of what one day could have um, exemplified over a, a week can really show the impact of, of what prison labor can do if it is able to, to stick together and, and, and be able to uh, withhold their labor for a sustained amount of time. So it's my understanding that jailhouse lawyers speak didn't actually plan the strike for this year, but then violence broke out at Lee Correctional Institution. Can you lay out for us what happened at Lee? I know prison officials called it a riot sparked by cell phones and gang rivalries, but strike organizers refuted this. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, in the I mean, in the traditional sense, uh, sure, it was a, a riot. And as far as that goes, there was absolutely violence. Um, but uh, the important part of the the story that's left out is that it's really um, uh, encouraged by the, the this prison administration. Prison administration officials and prisons themselves, um, they uh, can be associated to realignment here in California where they have classifications of four to two, you know, um, based on, you know, the crime and uh, whether you have a tendency for violence in the past and tickets. So uh, they have different, you know, and that's a whole other discussion of why people join up in you know, organizations for survival and protection. Within prisons, like Correct. joining gangs. Yeah, and, right, yeah. what they would call prison gangs, things like that. Um, and, and what they've been doing in California as well, which is important connection, is what they call here realignment. So they're putting people um, uh, from these different classifications or different sets or gangs into one area, into one pod is what they would call nowadays. Um, and... And in uh, Lee Correctional Facility, that's what the discussion was earlier this year, whether it was feasible for us to prisoners to be able to pull off another strike uh, so soon, close to 2016. But because of the violence at uh, Lee Correctional Facility, uh, which, yeah, potentially began over cell phones, but it began over the, the running of the, the facility by the administration. So what they did was put these different rival sets in one area, and uh, then just let them go at each other uh, once violence broke out. Started from one dorm. Uh, and like I said, now there's typically pod situations. So they can have one or two guards in a central spot that can have a 360-degree view of uh, seven pods around them, which you can, can hold up to 50 to 100 inmates. So it began in one pod uh, with fighting going on and, and guards sat right in the center bubble and, and let the violence continue for seven and a half hours. Twelve people uh, ended up dying. 
Um, there were seven that bled out. Two more were found dead in closets the next day. 30 of uh, 20 people were hospitalized. And uh, they literally, from one of the people that were there, said they were stacking the bodies uh, right up to next to the door. So it began in one dorm and spread to eventually three dorms. Lasted seven and a half hours while guards sat in a bubble and watched it all play out. So because of that and the fact that... Um, the way that the state, um, you know, really propagates these lateral hostilities and exploit them um, is the reason why jailhouse lawyers speak felt it was necessary um, to put this, these issues and these 10 demands um, front and center because there's, at this stage in the game, it's really life or death struggle. So jailhouse lawyers speak, it's a group of incarcerated activists, or as they term jailhouse lawyers, they help educate um, their fellow prisoners on their rights and um, how do they connect with one another and how do people in prison under so much repression and censorship organize a nationwide strike? Yeah, so that's why it's, it's really vital to have that outside component um, because obviously there's been insurrections or, or prison rebellions, you know, going back a long time. Um, but what's, you know, the culmination now in 2018 has been a culmination of years of of, of working together since 2010 and, and the hunger strikes in Pelican Bay, um, which really were a turning point in these uh, in these actions because of the outside support that started to be garnered, but also uh, an agreement to end hostilities, which came out of the Pelican Bay hunger strikes. And that has been a very important component um, uh, in 2016 and now also in 2018. Um, because it's able to show um, that they're able to uh, organize themselves as a class and to be able to call ceasefires amongst their rival gangs or sets uh, uh, and, and focus their attention on the system or their conditions as opposed to one another. And how do they communicate with one another? Yeah, so um, there's a number of different ways in, in a facility. Um, um, you have little pieces of paper that we call kites, uh, and you can send a kite to the administration, a warden, or um, a social worker, or you can write a kite uh, and put as much info as you can and, and have a trustee that delivers the food, transfer that letter to someone else somewhere else, or through visits. Uh, there's a number of different ways, phone calls, um, uh, so it, it's really important uh, f visits people on the outside transferring the information um, that we've been able to get and then uh, through the phone calls through the you know that are monitored by the administration at the same time but uh, they're at least able to relay the conditions that they're experiencing and um, how does your organization IWALK support and can you tell us a little bit about your story Sure. Well, I'm. Um, I was incarcerated in uh, starting 2001 and got out in 2004. Um, and um, since then, I've uh, joined the Industrial Works of the World, a radical revolutionary labor union, and I've been organizing with them ever since. Um, and. Really, uh, the IWW has been the only union that has taken up this fight for prisoner rights, um, recognizing that prisoners don't have access to funds like we do on the outside or jobs to, to have those that type of money. So the uh, their membership dues and ha has been waived and um, they have the full rights as any other member on the outside um, able to bring motions to convention and things like that so uh, really what I feel like to me is it's like picking up the torch of George Jackson who um, said when he was still alive that uh, uh, his call for prisoners union 
where where they're able to go across racial and religious divides to be able to, you know, recognize the common enemy, which is this system, which is really stoking the hostilities um, between these different groups of people. So um, that's what we really are. We try to facilitate, amplify, and publicize the voices of the prisoners on the inside and facilitate the formation of inside union branches. So we have one now in Texas uh, that's officially uh, a branch of the union, um, and they can bring motions to our convention uh, and and proposals to our to our national body that can be voted on. So, uh, we've also uh, established an international coordination with uh, revolutionary unions in other countries, and um, there's a large prisoners' union in Germany, GGBO. We've established relationships with them, um, so we've been able to uh, coordinate across the seas, and um, you know we hope to be able to spread that solidarity, continue to do those things. Um, so it was through my, uh, I was able to, to be repoliticized while I was incarcerated and it happens to a lot of people. Um, fortunately I had an outdate and, um, a lot of people do not have an outdate, uh, or, um, what we find a lot of times is, uh, you know, like I was sentenced to two to 20 years. So they give a very long tail so that while you're, while you're incarcerated, if you fight or if you, um, do drugs or don't follow the rules as they prescribe for you, then they'll give you a ticket or a potential to get um, violated on parole. So um, I was incarcerated with someone that was uh, sentenced from one to 10 years and was maxing out on the 10 years because uh, continued to get in fights or, you know, really played the prison game it's a, it's the politics within prison and and that's kind of what i told my people before i went in is that i'm not guaranteed to to be out in two years you know because i have you know personal uh, boundaries that i won't uh compromise just because i'm in prison and uh you know a lot of men and women are forced into those same situations unfortunately and the, the, the system encourages that because um it's easier to warehouse and control us while we're inside these facilities than it is on the outside so let's talk uh, about their list of demands. So Jailhouse Lawyers Speak released a list of 10 demands, including an immediate end to racial overcharging, over-sentencing, and parole denials to black and brown humans, an immediate end to racist gang enhancement laws, the reinstatement of Pell Grants, and importantly, voting rights, and also increased access and funding to rehabilitation. I wanted to ask you specifically about the demand to end what Jailhouse Lawyers Speak call prison slavery. They write all persons imprisoned in any place of detention under United States jurisdiction must be paid the prevailing wage in their state or territory for their labor. And prison labor has kind of been thrown into the spotlight recently with um, imprisoned people in California fighting wildfires, but prison labor goes far beyond that. Can you tell us a little about um, what kind of work people are required to do? Mm, yeah, sure. So there are corporations that are making money off of, uh, you know, prison labor. Um, and there's some states that aren't required to pay prisoners at all. I believe Colorado and Texas are, are, are some of those. And as you mentioned, uh, there's prisoners that are fighting fires. We have members of the union that are firefighters fighting the fires uh, and right alongside prisoners who are making, you know, a dollar to a day doing the same exact thing, same conditions, but without being able to use that work experience once they get out to, to be able to get that same type of job because now they're a felon. Um, the original question was... 
What kind of work are people doing within prisons? Oh, right. So, so some corporations like McDonald's and uh, Victoria's Secret and Walmart, you know, they do have contracts with with corporations to, um, you know, for for production of, um, you know, their their clothes or meat packing and things like that. But for by and large, what we've seen is the work being done is to facilitate the functioning of the state and the in the prisons themselves. Um, one of our leaders, um, Melvin Ray, and um, uh, kinetic justice from the free Alabama movement wrote in the lead up to 2016, a great document titled, um, let the crops rot in the fields. And in that document, they relayed, um, chattel slavery to the current modern day prison slavery. Um, and that, uh, um, whereas before there was the, uh, overseer and the, um, uh, landowner. Now we had the state administering those things with wardens and prison guards. Um, and in, uh, you know, places in the South, you know, production didn't end just because the 13th amendment was enacted. And it's important that people recognize that while it did exclude involuntary servitude, they, they failed to, to recognize that important part of the last sentence that said, except for, uh, those punished for a crime. So it literally leaves open, uh, uh slavery, uh, to, to continue to to go on as long as you've been uh, convicted of a crime. So incarcerated people are legally slaves. As far as the Constitution sense. is concerned, yeah. So um, your organization, Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, as you said, is part of the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. How do U.S. prisons fit into this larger picture of our economy and workers' struggles? Uh, I think that's an important question because um, really what what uh, what's happening now is um, and also what they um, uh, Melvin Ray and them wrote in let the crops rot in the fields was that uh, we should cease continuing to uh, reproduce or replicate the institutions of our confinement, meaning that it was the work of prisoners that was creating the conditions uh, that that were that they were forced to be in the inhumane conditions. Um, so the original question was, uh, sorry. No problem. Um, how do U.S. prisons, yeah. um, I, we're going to listen to a segment later on where uh, in prison person says that prisons are the largest disposal, disposal site for marginalized people. Right. And I'm wondering how they fit into a larger picture of our economy and workers' struggles. You're right. That's why I brought up that document again, the let the crops rot in the fields, because, uh, and also, um, ever. Uh, I remember Ivan Kilgore out of Soledad wrote uh, a book, and in it he describes uh, uh, there's a reason why um, they don't offer, like, for example, AT&T has been outsourcing call center work to prisoners since the 90s, unionized work work to prisoners uh, for little to no pay in prisons since the 90s. Um, and they've done that because they recognize that uh, uh, now they don't have to pay unemployment benefits. They don't have to, uh, you know, pay for health. And, you know, if uh, the prisoners start to act up, they'll just take that benefit away from them to be able to have that job. Um, but by and large, what we're seeing is more so than exacting the the profit from their labor. It's to continue to keep the institutions running, and um, uh, it's really warehousing of of people, poor people, particularly black and brown, and poor white people, for which no profit making work exists. So there aren't those uh, facilities like uh, these leaders have said. If they had that call center work in the same communities these people came from at prevailing wages. 
most of them wouldn't be in prison mm -hmm. or if rehabilitation services were, were, were uh, used on the outside, uh, you know, or, or a number of other things, resources were on the outside. We wouldn't have these uh, prisons like we do. But um, what, what they found is that uh, it's much easier to control this class of people if they're in prisons as opposed to outside. So um, it, it's a vital component of our um, of of our uh, economy because uh, it keeps the state running. Prisoners do uh, for little to no pay, um, and it should be a concern of all working people because um, that is work that's being uh, taken away from someone that could uh, you know be paid a prevailing wage. Prisoners should be paid a prevailing wage. Exactly. I brought up the German Prisoners Union, and that's been their uh, central demand for the last several years. Has been uh, prevailing wages for the work that they do, um, and. That should be a, uh, um, a common demand uh, across all for all union people and working people on the outside is that uh, if you're going to force these prisoners to do this work, especially work that can be done on the outside, then you need to pay them a prevailing wage to do it. You are listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM. Tonight we're speaking with Coles Dorsey of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Maru Mora Villapando, an undocumented activist currently working with people imprisoned in an ICE detention center in Tacoma, Washington. They are also on strike. Stay with us. <laughs> Two sides to every story, three strikes, and you bitten for life. Mandatory. Four MCs murdered in the last four years. I ain't trying to be the fifth when the millennium is here. There are six million ways to die from the seven deadly drills. Eight-year-olds getting found with nine mils. It's 10 p.m. where your C's at. What's the deal? They on the hill pumping krills to keep their bellies filled. Lighting the ass with heavy steel. Sights on the pretty shit in life. Young soldiers trying to earn their next strike. When the average minimum wage is 5.15, you best believe you gotta find a new grind to get cream. The white unemployment rate is nearly more than triple for black. Frontliners got their gun in your back. Bubble and crack. Jewel theft and robbery to combat poverty and end up in the global jail economy. Stiffer stipulations attached to each sentence. Budget cutbacks but increased police presence. And even if you get out of prison, still living, join the other five million under state supervision. This is business. No faces, just lines and statistics from your phone, your zip code to SSI digits. The system break man channel women in the figures. Two columns for who is and who ain't again numbers is hard and real and they never have been as but you push too hard even numbers got limits why did one straw break the camel's back here's the secret the million other straws underneath it it's all mathematics mighty most definitely it's simple mathematics check it out i'll revolve around science what are we talking about here mighty most definitely it's simple mathematics check it out This is Uhuru Rowe speaking to you live on prison radio from Sussex Two State Prison. Today I want to talk to you about a crisis that is happening behind the walls at Sussex Two State Prison. When I say crisis, I'm talking about the more than 12 preventable deaths of incarcerated citizens here at Sussex Two State Prison that has gone unreported in the media and has not been investigated by the state. To explain just how preventable most of these deaths could have been, I want to highlight the case of um, a friend of mine named John Tran, who was within two years of going home to his son, whom he always talked about with a twinkle in his eye. Unbeknownst to Tran, that's what we call him here, 
he would never get to see his son again on the other side of these prison walls. That's because on January 11, 2017, he was beaten to death doing what many say was an hour-long confrontation with a cellmate. There are three acts of egregious negligence which contributed to, de um, to trans death. Number one, there wasn't an officer stationed on the floor to patrol and monitor the pod due to critical understaffing which has plagued Sussex Blue State Prison the last year. Had an officer been stationed on the floor, trans cries for help would have been heard. Number two, all cells are equipped with an emergency call box which has a button that can be pressed when there's an emergency. The officer stationed in the control booth, Officer Clock, deliberately ignored the emergency call box to trans cell while Tran lay dying in the pool of his own blood. How Officer Clock responded to the emergency call, Tran still would be alive. Number three, in the weeks leading up to Tran's death, he and his cellmate put in several requests to unit manager J.F. Mills, requesting to be reassigned to separate cells. All of these requests were ignored by unit manager Mills. Had Mills moved either Tran or his cellmate to another cell, Tran would still be alive. On June 21st, Governor Ralph Northam ordered state officials to investigate the abuse claims by immigrant children at the Senegal Valley Juvenile Center. We need the same investigation of the more than 12 preventable, preventable deaths here at Sussex Blue State Prison since November 2016. So I'm calling on you, the people, to call Governor Ralph Northam at 804-786-2211 and Secretary of Public Safety Brian P. Moran at 804-786-5351 and demand that they order an investigation into these deaths and demand that both unit manager J.F. Mills and Officer Clark be immediately fired for their gross negligence which led to trans murder. Otherwise, we will keep dying behind these walls and our keepers will continue to escape accountability. Again, this is Uhuru Rose speaking to you live on Prison Radio from Sussex Blue State Prison in Virginia. Thanks for listening. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Welcome back to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. That was the voice of Uhuru Rowe speaking on prison radio from Sussex to State Prison in Virginia. You can learn more about Uhuru Rowe and read his writings on the blog ConsciousPrisoner.wordpress.com. You can find the link in our show notes at kpfaapprentice.org. And before that, you heard the song Mathematics by Yasin Bey. I'm Mari Nakagawa, and we're going to return to our conversation about the 2018 National Prison Strike. We're joined live in our KPFA studio by, studio by Cole Dorsey of Oakland, IWOC. And joining us by phone from Tacoma, Washington, is Maru Mora Vialpando. Maru is an undocumented activist who has been organizing in protest to the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma. But before we go to Maru, uh, Cole, I wanted to ask you if you could respond to Huru's comments about the spike in what he calls preventable deaths in Sussex. We know also that prisoners in Mississippi are dying at the highest rates the state has ever seen, at least 15 last month in August alone. Sure, yeah. They're, uh, typically, uh, the conditions are such that um, um, uh, in Michigan, uh, where I was, they, they called it uh, eight-man cells. They called it gladiator school uh, because it was down a long hallway, old style with bars, um, one guard, you know, 100 yards away. So uh, you're in a room with eight men for 23 hours a day, uh, out one hour a day for the day room to use the phone and things. So... Um, 
if violence were to break out or a fight or something like that, there's really no recourse other than screaming or pounding on a door or something like that. So, uh, and, and more times than not, uh, guards will take their time or uh, they'll say they need backup or things like that. So uh, they, they, put it, they create the conditions in such a way that um, it makes it very easy um, for prisoners to exert the most violence on one another and, and, and for the most pain to be inflicted before they can even make it to there to, to assist in any kind of way. And prison officials uh, still say the deaths in Mississippi were mostly the result of illness and natural causes, but there looks like there will be an investigation. So now we'll go to Maru in Tacoma. Maru, Maru are you with us? Yes. Hi, thank you so much for joining us. Um, can you tell us about the actions taking place at Northwest Detention Center? How many are on strike and for how long? Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Um, well, uh, the hunger strike um, in conjunction with the National Prison Strike began on August 21st. About 200 people joined the first round of uh, strikes. Um, by August 23rd, we find out that uh, later, we find out on August 23rd, uh, about a half dozen of men from Russia mainly had also joined the strike. Um, most of them have lasted over two weeks now, a hunger strike. The first 200 that joined stopped their strike after four or five days. There's been some uh, stopping and then some joining. It's really hard to keep track of numbers. We actually tried to visit uh, one of them um, that we believe is on the 15 or 16 day of a hunger strike. And the lawyer visit was denied. Um, the geo guards wouldn't allow the lawyer to visit, which is, which also happened back uh, last week where we tried to visit another one that had also lasted over two weeks. Um, so, uh, it's uh, like I said, it's hard to keep track of numbers. I, I would say that based on our estimate, I would say five to maybe seven people are still on hunger strike. At least two or three of them are, are already past two weeks of uh, hunger strike. The uh, most um, urgent thing is that uh, once they reached two weeks, I uh, started to threaten them with uh, force feeding. Um, the last we heard, I said that they were ready to file a court order. We actually reached out to the American Civil Liberties Union for them to at least send a letter to the warden and the U.S. attorney saying that's not how it works. Uh, first, there should be a medical assessment that says that the person's life is in danger for then I to actually file a court order. Um, we are trying to see those that are that are uh, in more than two weeks of strike. But like I said, there's been times when even the lawyers are trying to give them, um, they're denied the entrance. Um, and basically, people are, are just trying to follow up what's going on in different units. Uh, last Thursday, a whole unit, a whole pod of, of 70 people uh, began a hunger strike. When uh, dinner came, we started at lunch, and when dinner came, they stopped the little uh, cart with a food trays to come in into their pub, and the warden uh, decided to retaliate by emptying the unit. About 20 of those uh, were sent to segregation, accused with disturbance. The rest of them were sent to a different pod. Um, of those 20, six remain in segregation. Today they had a quote-unquote administrative hearing, and they were charged with 30 days of uh, segregation and no communications. Um, we're trying to 
see exactly how we can support that and get them out of solitary. Um, we actually did that back in 2014. This is not new. You know, the hunger strikes at the detention center are not new. And just right now, uh, before this interview, we got a call from the detention center saying that a whole unit has been placed in quarantine because another chickenpox outbreak just started. And uh, this would be the second one of the year. Last year, we also had another uh, chickenpox outbreak. Um, we don't know if people in that uh, unit had a, have attempted a hunger strikes or not, but this is a really dangerous situation that people are living right now in the Rawas Detention Center in Tacoma. So, Maru, who are the people in detained in this center? Well, there's uh, about 1,600 people detained, um, both men and women, adults. Um, the population of men is about 200 people and most women. Uh, they are all under the prote- deportation proceedings. It's all civil uh, matters. Uh, there's always this argument that um, the detention center is placed in a location uh, which is nearby families. That is totally untrue because this detention center bring, brings people all the way from Alaska, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, uh, and obviously Oregon. So we have people from different places, including California, although California has their big share of uh, uh, detention centers. Uh, the Northwest Detention Center is always one where we see a lot of people with medical issues because according to ICE, this is their top facility. And every time people are detained, when ICE put them in detention and ICE knows these people have medical conditions, they're always told, we'll send you to Northwest Detention Center because they have the best medical care. And that's when a lot of the strikes begin because people don't have, don't never, they really don't receive medical care. And so we have a long list of people that joined the hunger strike precisely because of the lack of medical care. So this detention center, Northwest Detention Center, is operated by the company GeoGroup, the largest private prison company in the U.S. Maru, can you talk about the privately owned detention centers and how they connect with our increasingly privatized prison system? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's important to always mention that Geo Group came out of the uh, uh, war on drugs, right? They they were the ones benefiting from the war on drugs. They started private security companies for prisons back in the 80s. Then they began the, the business of uh, running private prisons. Um, and they later, later wanted to expand their business into immigration detention. They're the ones that started lobbying uh, the Republican administration, the Bush administration, to actually privatize detention that didn't exist uh, back then. And with 9-11 as excuse, it was just a perfect opportunity for them to uh, own the prisons and operate them. Uh, GEO is the owner of this, this prison here in WDC, and they run it too. They benefit not only for the amount they charge daily per person detained to ICE, which is really us paying, uh, but they also benefit of their labor. Uh, just today, people were telling me uh, they've been uh, asked to, well, actually, they've been forced because they were saying they're not supposed to even uh, say no. Uh, they're going to choose eight people out of in one spot to clean the tables. The tables are bolted to the floor, and they're supposed to clean um, the of the tape and underneath the table and uh, they were made to work two hours for that. They were not paid for that. Uh, jobs 
if they get paid, it would be only one dollar a day, and those jobs are running the kitchen, the laundry, and the uh, washing the, the bathrooms. But there's also the barber shop. I mean, name it. Everything is run by people that pay. Mm-hmm. Most of the jobs are not paid. Uh, people do work not only one, but sometimes three jobs during the day because there's nothing else to do and because they need the money. No matter how many hours or how many jobs they do in one day, if they get paid, they still receive only $1 a day, which they never see. They only get to see it through the commissary. So the commissary company keeps the benefits from also this labor uh, workforce that literally is captive labor. So, Cole, um, the movement to abolish ICE has become a fairly mainstream topic of conversation. In the midterm elections, we just saw politicians across the country winning with platforms that included the abolition of ICE. Do you see a way that the prison abolition movement, which IWOC supports, can connect with the struggle to abolish this other form of racialized policing and incarceration? Yes. Yeah. Think- oh, sorry, Mara. Go ahead. Yeah, no, sorry. I, I wanted to say that I think it's been clear that uh, it, it's already connected. When um, the National Prison Strike sent a statement in support of people on, on prisons uh, about under ICE custody, they, uh, that's why people responded to that solidarity and the connections. And let me remind your audience that a lot of the people that are detained throughout the nation in detention centers actually come from prisons. Cool. Um, yes, so the, we find that the, it's the exact same uh, conditions, especially uh, related to uh, this racialized form of um, uh, imprisonment that we've seen, particularly target poor black, brown, uh, and poor white people. Uh, it's the exact same for um, undocumented people or indigenous folks, especially uh, in Canada. Um, the, the sentencing rates, you know, um, um, you know, are uh, exorbitant compared to to the the um, ratio of those in uh, society. Absolutely. Uh, um, thank you so much, Tamaru from Tacoma, undocumented organizer working with the Northwest Detention Center. Center Resistance and Cole Dorsey live in studio from the Oakland chapter of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. You can find links to both their work in our show notes. You're listening to Full Circle on 94.1 KPFA. We're going to take another short break. When we come back, we'll hear from Noelle Hanrahan, founder of Prison Radio. Stay with us. Yeah. 
Again, you're tuned into Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. That was the voice of Kevin Rashid Johnson, currently incarcerated in Sussex One State Prison in Virginia. Johnson is the Minister of Defense in the prison chapter of the New African Black Panther Party. Hear more from Johnson on prisonradio.org or rashidmod.com. Again, links will be in the show notes. And before that, you heard Bob Dylan's Hurricane. I'm Mari Nakagawa, and this is Full Circle. Tonight, we're in conversation with organizers supporting prisoners on strike in our country's prisons and detention centers. Up next, we hear from Noelle Hanrahan, founder of Prison Radio. Noelle is on the East Coast, where it's about 1045, so we spoke earlier this evening on the phone. Noelle, welcome to Full Circle. Really glad to be on your show. Can you tell us about why you founded Prison Radio and what kind of work you do? Hey, Prison Radio was founded at KPFA Radio. (laughs) So a while ago, um, we were interested in bringing first-person radio from people inside prison to the airwaves. We felt like we couldn't really cover what was happening in the prisons and what was happening to society without hearing from men and women who were inside. So I was at KPFA Radio covering the Robert Alton Harris execution way back in 1992, and we couldn't find somebody on death row to talk to. And we had to. We had to talk to people inside. So I went and I started recording Mumia Abu-Jamal, and then also we started recording women at um, Dublin. Can you talk a little about... um what a difficult situation it is with um, broadcasting the voices of prisoners because on the one hand, it's essential to get to learn about their conditions and get changes that are really um, specific to their situations and to the reality within prisons, but at the same time, they face such great uh, risk of retaliation if they do speak out. So I, I assume in the case of Mumia, he has so much, um, he has a certain amount of fame right now that that if something were to happen to him, um, it would be well publicized, but that's not the case for other prisoners. Every single right that we have, whether we're inside or outside, we have to fight for. And that's true of people inside. You don't fight. If you don't fight, you don't win. So even Mumia Abu-Jamal, every step of the way, we had to fight for access. And not very long ago, they were trying to shut down all Pennsylvania prisoners' access to the phones and to journalists by taking away their right to write and their right to speak. We fought that. We filed a lawsuit. We won it. But we have to do it. I mean, it happens. It's like breathing. Making sure you have access to our relatives inside, the people we care about, our communities who are warehoused and who are oppressed and who are targeted to be inside these prisons, it takes really committing to the fact that they're human, that they don't lose their rights when they go inside, and that society really needs to take a strong look at this because it's criminogenic. I mean, honestly, this society creates crime. Mm-hmm. This society is built on its capitalist infrastructure, is built on the controlling of people's bodies, whether it's working class people or people of color, and this is a huge part of the engine. Now, if you're journalists, If we're as journalists, we need to cover this story. There is no excuse for journalism not to cover this story because it affects everything we do. It's such a huge part of our budgets. It's such a huge part of our culture. The fact that prisons can be 
isolated. The fact that we can have 7,000 people within spitting distance of KPFA across the bridge right where you are, and we don't really think about it every day, that's just, it's because journalists aren't doing their jobs. Mm. Can you talk about also how prison officials control the narrative and the degree to which they control the information coming in and out of prisons? The movements around the country, people's families, journalists, radical lawyers, and for the most part, the men and women inside who are talking, who are organizing, those people are, are driving the narrative. Honestly, that's what's driving a lot. You can't necessarily see it because the media on the outside doesn't give you the bounce. It doesn't give you the echo. It doesn't give you the publicity. It doesn't give you the, you know, self-reflection or the, the um, input on it. But it's happening. It's changing our culture because there are men and women inside organizing and there are people's families all over the country who are doing grassroots organizing who are changing the narrative. So I think there's an enormous amount of power. And when you exercise your human dignity and your self-empowerment and your self-determination, guess what? The folks that are comfortable with how this goes are having a backlash. So there is a very strong backlash. Pennsylvania, where I live, has locked down all of its prisons, has stopped all visiting, all mail. This has been going on for a week now. That's 27 prisons. And we think that it's a a reaction to some guards union pulling some stunt to try and get the governor to band with them. To It's like the shock doctrine. We're seeing it right now where Pennsylvania... One of the largest prison systems in the country, 55,000 people, is actually doing like a Naomi Klein shock doctrine experiment. We're in the middle of it. They are completely privatizing all of the mail. They're com- they've shut down all the visiting rooms. They banned legal visits for a week. This was like unprecedented. And it's at the best test of the guards union. And the excuse is um, the opioid epidemic and that 30 guards were sick. Well, Probably, if you talk to public health experts, there's a different approach to that solution to that problem, not the stripping of all contact and all access to 55,000 people who are being held now in communicado in Pennsylvania prisons and 27 institutions. Mm-hmm. So what kind of oversight is there in prisons? I, I know that the U.S., unlike Canada and France and other countries, we don't have a regulatory body that's tasked specifically with monitoring prison conditions and reporting to the public. So how do we learn about the conditions and what rights do imprisoned people have to speak to media? So we have to fight for every right we have, right? And so we have to exercise our rights. We have to do it like we're breathing. So right now, prison radio is in court in Ohio, trying to get cameras into Ohio's death row, saying that they've Policies are unconstitutional. That's a lawsuit called Hanrahan versus Moore. We're developing a case in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania only lets in the media, the uh, TV cameras that they want, and that's patently unconstitutional. You can't select what prisoners get to talk to the media. You can't audition prisoners. So Pennsylvania Department of Corrections is currently, or has been, I wonder if they're doing it this week, um, because that would be really interesting you know, if they were backing up those media trucks to the front doors of the prison and letting people talk to the ones that they want to let have talk to. But the First Amendment survives prison walls. 
The Eighth Amendment survives prison walls. And so it's a combination of journalists who are willing to struggle and media outlets who are willing to go in there. It's a combination of people inside, which we have. When um, the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections decided to try and shut down access to all prisoners, access to the media a couple of years ago and targeted prison radio, we won that First Amendment lawsuit in federal court. But then we decided, hey, we're going to make sure that we record someone from every single Pennsylvania institution. We're going to, in response to that attack, we are going to take more land. We are going to take more ground. So we've been reaching out and developing correspondence at all these different sites, Fayetteville, Albion, Greaterford, SCI Green, Mahanoy. You know, when they attack us, we have to do more. So we've been working on that and um, really thinking about how to expose their contradictions and use the legal apparatus to get in. Um, and, you know, it is a struggle and it is important, but we got to do it because we're honoring the fact that people inside are taking risks to talk to us. People inside are writing. People inside are creating poetry. People inside are resisting. And our job is to support their struggle. Noel, I think lately more and more people are beginning to be able to imagine a world without prisons. But for those who still find it difficult, can you describe to you what that looks like and why it might be realistic? So a while back, um, when I was a board operator, when I was running the board at KPFA, I decided I had to also figure out about prison. So I started getting a master's in criminal justice. And we ha we and I thought throughout the whole thing, why are we studying just America? Like this system is broken. One in ninety nine in prison. One in forty two will go to prison in your lifetime. One in three black men go to prison. Like this is a criminogenic system. But there everywhere else in the world does not do it like this. The end result of this level of mass incarceration certainly serves capitalism, but it doesn't serve the people and it is a big sacrifice. Once you warehouse and criminalize that amount of your population, you are making a choice. For every prisoner and every prison we build, there is not something else that's being delivered to the community, whether it's health care or education. So I'm saying that, you know, look, we've got to do it differently. We've got to study other countries, other cultures. We have to become educated. And this system is a product of capitalism. And it has to be, and it has to be overturned quickly. Like for the last 40 years, we've been like frogs in a pot of boiling water. We went from 250,000 prisoners to 3.1 million just in the space of 30 years. You know, the, the tidal wave of abolition, abolition has to go back in the same tidal wave. Like mm. We have to overturn this. We can't get one person out of a time. We have to get out you know, classes of categories of people. We have to roll back those, that legislation. Abolition is not a foreign concept anywhere else but this country. Like, we have to realize that no other country imprisons this level of its population, and the sacrifice is great for that cost, for that choice. Noel, what can people find on your website, prisonradio.org? uncensored voices of people from inside 
talking about what they think is important without the filter, without the narrative from the mainstream media, without the edited version. Like, we encourage our our correspondents to do two- to three-minute commentaries. That's exactly what they want to say, so it fits into a lot of radio stations around the country and around the world. And then if they want to do longer pieces, we take those shorter pieces, those drop-ins, and then we drive them to their longer pieces. So we privilege prisoners' voices and what they have to say and amplify what's going on inside. Thank you so much for joining us, Noel. Thank you. And thanks to our other guests, Cole Dorsey of Oakland IWALK and Maru Mora Viapando of Northwest Detention Center Resistance. You can find more information and links to our guests' work in the show notes. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. You've been listening to Full Circle on KPFA. You can find this and all our shows archived at kpfaapprentice.org. Tune in next week for a show by our soon-to-be graduate apprentice, Kat Brook. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> Not soon-to-be nightmare. <laughs> soon-to-be graduate apprentice, Kat Petru on Restore Oakland. And a reminder, the Rise for Climate, Jobs, and Justice March and rally begins at 11 a.m. tomorrow in San Francisco's Embarcadero. The event kicks off a week of action surrounding the Global Climate Summit. Check out KPFA's live stream video coverage of the March 1 to 3 p.m. on kpfa.org. Again, you've been listening to Full Circle. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Freewheeling Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. Thanks to Sharon on the board and Stevie G, our tech assistant. I'm Mari Nakagawa. This is Full Circle. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay tuned. La Onda Bajita is next.